You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Some cultures more than others revere their elders, ancestors, and ties between the living and the not living now. Some communities have preserved ancient rituals and customs for honoring the deceased, the elder lineage, its gifts and opportunities for healing and peace. Joining us this hour is Dr. Daniel Four, who has done a great deal in his life and book, Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, a Bear and Company 2017 release. He shows us in his work how we can make contact with our family lineages and why it is wise to make the effort. In this most unusual book, one learns how to unite the currents of time by those incarnate now, with those already lived, and those not yet born. Learn about ancestral ties, the gifts of families, the hardships to overcome, the ways of honoring and healing as families create communities of wellness. Join us for an interesting and reverent approach to our inheritances, from DNA to ancestor story, and even why preparing our death responsibly is a part of having an easier transition in the afterlife and easing the burdens on the living. Thank you for joining us, Daniel. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the beautiful introduction. Oh, my Lord, what a fascinating topic and an extraordinary book. I have to say, I have never, ever seen a book like this in all the thousands of books I've read. So thank you for contributing a whole new um, avenue of approach to me, too. Yeah, you're welcome. How did you get involved with this entire pathway of healing and our ancestors? Yeah, sure. My own ancestors of blood are English, Irish, German, early settler colonizers to North America. And so I grew up in Ohio, and I wasn't raised with any framework for relating with directly with the ancestors, but had the good fortune in high school to encounter revival forms of shamanism and ritual. And my first teachers in those practices as a late teenager encouraged me to relate with the spirits of animals and plants and the other than human beings who we think of as nature. Right. And from there to also consider my own ancestors as a source of spiritual goodness and benefit, including the much older ones, the ones who lived before remembered names and before the last 500,000, 1500 years of cultural disruption in Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, and that set me on a path of getting to know them over many years and seeking other intact traditions that have for, uh, intact practices, understanding of for ancestor reverence and ritual, and to gradually uh, deepen in that understanding in an embodied way. And I've also trained as a marriage and family therapist and a doctor of psychology in the meantime. And that helped me to see a lot of the patterns that we are struggling with, not just personally and on a family level, but also culturally with respect to racism, sexism, colonialism, different kinds of cultural troubles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're unmetabolized ancestral problems and difficulties. That's an interesting way to put it. You know, we often think of our inheritances specific to us rather than this collective inheritance. And, you know, that's how I always feel about war. Every war, you know, creates a new war. (laughs) It's like it doesn't end a war. It starts a new war. I, I loved your dedication to all those, quote, working to protect and creatively renew ancient ways of life that respect the earth 
and the many beings. May the ancestors guide us well through the ordeals that lie ahead. Talk to us about this. Um, I mean, you've you've studied with your teachers in West Africa. You've trained with teachers of Mahayana Buddhism, Islamic Sufism, and um, other indigenous paths, as you shared with us. What do they share in common, all these various ways of approach to ancestors? Well, for me at least, the especially the more indigenous or earth-honoring or I would use the word traditional paths share a value on relationship and understanding ourselves in an embedded relational context that I'm not even sure I exist apart from others and the world that reflects back uh, mm-hmm. my sense of self. And so there's no enlightenment apart from others or relationship. And so we're, we're deeply structurally fundamentally in, in it together. So that's one core value that really is foreground in traditions that speak to my heart. And another is a respect for difference and diversity that my destiny is different than yours is different than each listener. And that can mean not only that you have different things to take care of in this lifetime, it can mean that different kinds of spiritual practices are good medicine for you. Different ways of spending your time are good medicine. There's not one way of being that's correct for everybody. And because of that, because we ideally look to the rest of what we think of as a natural world or the other than human communities for uh, our understanding of what's sacred and you know of life in a bigger context, we see there's such a tremendous diversity of form in the natural world. And that same uh, celebration of diverse form can inform human culture and help us not to just be tolerant of one another, but to see and value and celebrate people's differences. So appreciation for difference, for uniqueness, and uh, fundamental relatedness and embeddedness that requires us to be accountable to one another. Those are a few core values that I won't say they're universal, but they're recurrent enough, and they're certainly dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And and certainly when one examines the thread that winds and weaves throughout the millennium in the indigenous cultures, and it doesn't matter what part of the planet you go to, the understanding of this symbiotic relationship between our consciousness and all that's around us, our heart and all that we touch. Um, Just as you said, I I like to say it in a very kind of funny way (laughs) when people are like arguing, myself included sometimes, and I'll say, oh, wait a second, it's all of us together or it's all of us together. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and that's really the truth. So in using ritual, you talk a lot about different kinds of rituals to contact ancestral guides. Give us some, um, I, I guess the answer, the question would be s- some reasons that a person would want to contact, let's say, um, a great, great, great grandparent they've never met, or even a parent that has recently passed on. I mean, what well, is this process yeah. for? The most popular reason to come to spiritual practice is because you're suffering mm-hmm. and you want relief from the ways that you're suffering. And that's a, that's a fine reason to come. And realizing that what you're suffering from is actually intergenerational often, sometimes cultural, sometimes, you know, can have different forms, but seeing that it didn't come out of nowhere and that by getting at the root of those troubles, and going a step beyond that to see the resourced, healthy energy that was in place before the trouble, that can uh, be a start to shifting some of the suffering. 
So relief from suffering is one motivation or legit reason to engage. Mm-hmm. Another is the grappling with the question of what am I doing here? Like, okay, um, I have enough to eat, I paid my taxes, whatever. And, uh, you know, I've responded to my emails, Facebook's checked. And what am I doing here now? So seeking a sense of, of you want a meaningful life. Right. And our ancestors have guidance about that. A lot of what we are drawn to or averse to or compelled to do is a inheritance from them. We're playing out their stories again and again. And and, and can I just want to stop you for a moment because there is a difference between um, like biogenealogy, where our DNA, very our our literal bones, are carrying the trauma of our ancestors, versus c- the collective um, love um, gives us an opportunity to, I guess, what's the right word? Be more than our bodies. That's right. I see it as a both and. I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm wary of any map of reality that would see the spirit and the physical being separate. Mm-hmm. So it really is one one big complicated body, some of which we can physically perceive and some of which we can't. And at, at the same time, in the usual way, we mean the body, like the physical body. We're more than that also. So that that's also true. And the ancestors are the collective wisdom and trouble of the species at least in the way i use the word right i'm thinking of the human dead or you know more specifically the ones who are not incarnate right now they're in the present they're a source of relationship so they're alive in that sense but they're just not incarnate right now we've been among them we'll return to them there's a lot of cycling between the incarnate and not incarnate right camps among the humans and uh so when we come into relationship with them, it's not just the last few generations that we know something about. A lot of folks assume when they say, oh, connect with your ancestors, that the uh, the implication is you're, you're directly relating with the last few generations. And sometimes those people were abusive or absent or harmful in other ways. And indeed, not all of the dead are equally well. Some of them are quite troubled. And relating with ancestors it's important to have the discernment that you would have when relating with humans i wouldn't have written a book to say oh you should relate with humans period well you need some discernment about it and so one of the one of the most important things if folks are coming back into engagement with their ancestors not just as an idea but as another kind of person in spirit is to bring discernment to that to know that some of them are deeply wise and loving and some of them are still quite troubled. We always joke that when uh, when a family member dies, they become a saint. <laughs> That's a, that one can hope. Right? Right. The ascension. Well, it's just sort of funny. You know, you can have a person, you'd have all these problems, and then they die. And most of the time, people talk about all the wonderful things. And we used to just call it the sainting of our families. I think it's good for your reputation to die. I'm not... In- <laughs> entirely convinced it makes you wise and loving but one can hope well and it's so funny because there is this sort of this um i guess it's naivete that oh i can just go contact the spirits and they're all good and i've said to younger people i said well when you walk down the street do you talk to everybody you see no you know that when some are troubled or some are dangerous you don't engage them and that's basically the same thing you're saying your discernment is about that all life has um purpose and sometimes um as you point out, 
those who have come before us have not completed their destinies or their purpose. What What is it that, um, I mean, you, you have such a broad scale view. I have so many questions for you. I'm kind of tripping over my own mind at the moment. But when you um, look at the general overshadow, I think that's the way I think of it, the overshadow of what we're wrestling with as a humanity, is it simply a wrestling with love? I mean, are, is it that all of this is about coming to learn to love? Sure. How could a person argue with that? I would uh, maybe, yes. And I would say that to love skillfully also requires wisdom and yeah. it requires a understanding of relationship. To know how to love your partner, your child, the land, the dead, the mountains, the sun, the plants in your home, each kind of person, whether their form is human or other than human, whether they're visible to us or not visible, has different mm, love needs, I guess. And so people who are very masterful at relationship and demonstrate that through being well-respected and well-regarded and very considerate and very loving toward others, they tend to also have one way or another, cultivated a framework for navigating lots of different kinds of relationships. Right. And depending on culture, it can vary from place to place and what is acceptable and what isn't. And so these energetic patterns get hard fast. And um, it's interesting, like, for instance, when a person is born into a family and the family has a particular religious practice, and then that person grows up and they go into a totally different tradition, um, the growth that it can occur is wonderful, but also sometimes I don't know that everybody appreciates how much work it is to change that energetic pattern. It's like a calling. It's not just something you do lightly. Yeah, for sure. Some of what I observe is that when people are drawn to things that culturally seem quite fringe or they're uh, pushing the envelope culturally, let's say their gender expression is different or they're uh, drawn to things that are very witchy or outside the box culturally, maybe more conservative American values. Sometimes they may be judged by family in ways that are really painful. Yeah. However, they may actually be reinstating ancestral gifts. And so if we expand family to include the ancestors, sometimes people, for example, who are queer, genderqueer, or trans, or gender nonconforming, can, once they get to know their ancestors, may be told, look, this is a gift from our lineage. Mm -hmm. The family you feel judged by, those are just a few recent people who don't really understand the bigger context. You may think you're outside a family, but in fact, you've restored something sacred to the family. That's a beautiful, beautiful um, way to, to articulate what transformation is. I always feel like the the work we're doing is kind of like this alchemy. You know, how do we take things, transform them without destroying them? You know, whether, whether it's relationships or nature or countries. Look, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, I'd love to talk about in your chapter three, spontaneous ancestral contact, how through dreams, synchronicity, non-ordinary states, waking encounters in ordering, ordinary states, because there may be people in our audience say, well, yeah, one day I was sitting in the park and all of a sudden I heard this voice and it said to me, you know, thank you so much for bringing forth the gifts of our family and they don't even know who's talking to them. I mean, when I was a child, I used to dream about this man playing violin. I had no idea who it was. And then years later, I discovered it was a picture of my great-great-grandfather who I never met. 
who used to play violin. And when I was writing my books on Kabbalah, he was always talking to me. It's like, thank you for writing my book. <laughs> so, anyway, we're going to take a little break. If you're just joining us, Daniel Four is with us, his beautiful book. Really, if you all want to explore something that is so helpful and so unique and yet so ancient, Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. It's a Bear and Company 2017 release. Go to www.ancestralmedicine.org. Hello, this is Robbie Holtz, co-author of award-winning Secrets of Aboriginal Healing and Aboriginal Secrets of Awakening. You can learn more about us at www.holtzwellness.com. That's H-O-L-Z as in zebra, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Daniel Four is with us. His last name is spelled F-O-O-R. His book, Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, is a Bear and Company 2017 release, and you can learn more at www.ancestralmedicine.org. Daniel Yes. Oh, you are there. Good. We couldn't see your video on. It's so fascinating how many different ways now you can talk to somebody any, anywhere in the world. I, I used to have to do it all by phone line. <laughs> right. Anyway, so spontaneous ancestral contact. You talk about the various ways in which this can happen, whether somebody has planned on it or they've been, a you know, somebody has said, we're coming to see you. Yeah, the first thing is that contact between the living and the dead is so normal and so common. It's not spiritual. It's not special. It's very common. It can be very impactful, just like contact between two living people can be very impactful. But uh, the first thing is it's very common. This can happen unsolicited through dreams, through synchronicities where a song comes on the radio or you, a series of events happens that are hyper meaningful and mm -hmm. it's accompanied by a sense of contact. It can happen through altered states where a near-death experience, something like that, or in an ordinary state of consciousness where you just sense your mother who's passed to be sitting next to you, or you hear her voice, something like that, is very common and normal and okay. And a lot of the what to do with it proceeds from trying on the view that it actually happened, not minimizing it. Right. And that voice that would minimize those contacts is i would describe as a function of damage from colonialism mm -hmm. it's a kind of cultural harm that we've internalized uh, a shaming of our ability to relate with the sacred directly and with the other than incarnate ones directly and so when we just acknowledge our mother sitting on the bench next to us and talk back just that is breaking a cultural agreement in a, in a beneficial way, in a way that brings more relational intimacy and connectivity into our lives. And if the ones who are contacting us are seem quite troubled in spirit, it's possible they could be consciously or less consciously asking for help. Right. And in those situations, it's good to know that there are ways to bring about and render that help. And if we don't know how to do that, reach out to someone who does. There are many people trained in how to offer that kind of support. 
no problem. I don't do my own dental work. I don't know how. <laughs> right. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a specialization to know how to navigate all this stuff. That, and I'm glad you say that because I'm in my 60s and sometimes when younger people, you know, they go to these workshops and then they say they're shamans and they're going to go do this interdimensional work and they're going to release this. I always feel like, you know, like slow down. You know, yeah. it's not without its danger. It's not without harm. It's not without, you know, you could get possessed. I don't like to tell people that but let's talk about that for a moment because as you point out it, you know people can walk into a bar and walk out with a monkey on their back and i don't mean a physical monkey i mean a well, being with true. issues there's so much to be said really and i don't <laughs> want to be too hard on the ambitious 20 year old spiritual seekers because i used to be one me too so, so sometimes it evens out um, but it's mostly the advice would be work with a teacher yeah and if it goes well for like a decade minimum there's a chance you be you could become a less annoying and even useful person. I but, love that you said that. Yeah, I just and, love that somebody said, "Well, how do you do transspecies telepathy?" Which I do. I said, "I don't do anything. I just practiced for forty years." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. It sure and does. Be, and being like, a, like I guess a wise person or someone who is both skillful and loving and you know, capable of spiritual stuff. Yeah. It, it's like an old person job. It takes decades mm -hmm. to to get decent at it. And then another couple decades of not dying to really get masterful at it. And so work with teachers, be humble, stick with it. Know that a lot of teachers are crazy people. So yeah. be discerning and find good people around you that will call you out buy some therapy if you can afford it mm -hmm. and uh, and know that the culture tends to generate messed up emotionally psychologically damaged people yeah and so if you're gonna hope to be an actual grown-up which is a lot of what people mean when they say an elder they just mean someone who's actually like achieved grown-up status is uh there's going to be a lot of cultural unlearning because we have a lot of really harmful conditioning around you know, gender and power and money and things like that. Sure, so sure. It takes, takes years of inquiry and excavation to really achieve grown-up status in this culture. So in looking at, for instance, let's just talk about one of the things you said, um, home is where the bones are. Um, <laughs> that, I love that expression. Thank you. I, I just, I adore your work. I mean, um, I've read so many thousands of books and it's not, a, and I'm a big fan of Bear and Company. They're also my publisher, my husband's publisher. And um, I always joke, most of my guests come from, from inner traditions, um, gift of writers and authors, but you approach it in such a way that is both um, respectful and serious, and I appreciate that. When we talk about ritual or memorial or ceremony, talk to us about the place of burial and why so many cultures have so many beautiful traditions, and sometimes there aren't traditions. Yeah. As soon as I try to speak of a thing, I always feel cautious because I don't want to create more dogma. Right. There's a lot of black and white thinking and rigidity, and so I don't want anything I would say to be taken as how it is. But I'll say that there's something, the, the bones and teeth, the, that level of the body, is the slowest change, and it's like the, the final resounding note of the incarnation. And in respect to people who choose cremation or who's remains are not recoverable or who die at sea or whatever it is. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's bad, um, but in a condition of burial or where the remains are available, 
it's as if the physical remains are a kind of link or a spirit house or an extension of the soul that can be not confining but accessed by the one who is previously incarnate right and in that way the the bones are they're a stitch between this world and the other world and a, a point of potentially heightened contact uh, graves are often a common place of communion with the dead yeah, that's very traditional in Judaism. On the anniversary of the Yark site, the death of a person, you go to their grave, and that's when they're available because sure, they come back candle, to visit. And yeah, all of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, or stone, however the traditions go, and right. say Kaddish, Yeah, and uh, the um, so many many cultures do it like that, and we we honor the dead as a kind of protection as well, because they're dangerous to engage and they're dangerous to forget about. And so keeping them conscious is a way of not uh, playing out the unhelpful stories. And it's a way of accessing the uh, what's beautiful and good about the legacies. And I think of my involvement in Yoruba culture in Southwest Nigeria and in the Egungu medium society, ancestral medium society, when the ancestors are in full embodiment. So the mediums are in head to toe costume or masquerade they're the ones uh, that are all covered right yeah exactly uh -huh. very colorful um ancestor like spacesuits and uh you don't it, it varies but for the most part you don't really want them to touch you there's a sense of like healthy awe and respect and also they're called it's like good that they're here good to see you and you're dangerous <laughs> mm -hmm. so it captures something about mm -hmm. uh, intimacy in general whether it's with the living or the dead mm -hmm. and um so, you know, the bones matter, and um, the the remains of the dead, when put in the earth, reinforce the teaching that the living deity that is the earth is an extension of ancestral consciousness, and in that way is also the manifestation of ethics or morality and witnessing. And the earth is the third between you and I in the conversation or between me and the listeners in this moment. Like the earth is present right. in all these interactions. Right. And so part, not all, but a big part of the sentience of the earth is that it's the calabash that contains the souls or spirits of the dead. What a beautiful way to see it and to articulate it. Can you, well, we're going to, we don't have a break right now, but at some point I would love for you, well, maybe we can just do this now. Can you give our audience like the simplest of exercises that you give people that are safe, something they can do to kind of get a sense of what we're talking about? Something that we, we do right now or something that I give to them to do on their own? You could give them something to do on their own. Yeah. The, the single most useful thing, I think, there are many intro exercises, but just start talking out loud to your ancestors. And let me qualify it. Make it real specific that you're addressing the wise, loving, kind, healed, well-off ones. So generally have the assumption that some among the dead that you're connected through, through blood and bone are something other than fully well. And some of them are deeply well. Remember, this includes many, many, many generations of ancestors. Yeah. yeah. And, and so speak loving, wise grandmas, grandpas, those who are neither gram grandmas nor grandpas, like if you're kind of gender nonconforming and the language appeals to confining. Elders is me. I love you. I don't know your names and faces. 
I would love for you to support my life. Help me to be protected. Help me to be uh, on my path of destiny. Help me to know you more deeply. And I'm listening. So lean in, give a sign. And speak to them like that, just from the heart. However honest you can get it, go like that. And But speak to them out loud some. And that's a way of sending out a beacon to them. And it breaks in a, a, an agreement of silence. That's a good agreement to break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back. If you're just joining us, our guest is Daniel Four, F-O-O-R. His book, Ancestral Medicine, I really encourage everybody to get this. There's just... The, the topic is vast, the process is specific, and we can't do justice to the gift that this book brings all of us. Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. It's a Bear & Company 2017 release, and you can learn more at www.ancestralmedicine.org. Hello, this is Dina Metzger. I am the author of A Reign of Nightbirds, and my concern is climate change and how we create a viable future for all beings. You can learn more about me and my work at dinametzger.net. That's D-E-E-N-A-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. So coming back to all of these different ways in which we can make contact with our ancestors, we can help heal the earth as well as our communities. What about, you had said something in your book about so many people die a year and many don't make the transition easily or they don't make it at all. Talk to us more about that. The death of the body is the start of a rite of passage that doesn't complete until we've been received by the ancestors or maybe when we become a well-seated ancestor ourselves traditional funeral rites tend to this they are funerals are not just for the living they're to make sure the one who's died is properly um, received in the other world and rituals of grieving with different prayers and offerings and all the structures that happen services around traditional funeral customs attend to that and often that gets left out a bit in modern times depending on where people are at so many of if people lead a loving wise you know a, an ethical life they're a really good person odds are they'll navigate the journey after the death of the body pretty well because they've reinforced good instincts and a good uh, sense of interconnectedness and relationship that will see them through. But if people were difficult during life, or they didn't have much training or practice or dress rehearsal for their death, or they weren't very well loved, or they're not very well grieved, and nobody's doing any ceremony on their behalf when they die, there's a chance that they could no longer be incarnate, but not really be received yet by the ancestors. And that's what's meant when people say ghosts. And it's the dead who have no longer, they died, but they haven't left yet. Right. So they're, they're still at the train station. The train hasn't come. Right. And sometimes it's because there's intergenerational trouble along the lineage. If someone passes and that man's father and his father are deeply unwell in spirit, that's a disadvantage in that person transitioning well themselves. 
So there's intergenerational momentum to the troubles oftentimes. Hmm. You've added yeah. a, a new problem I never thought about. <laughs> yeah. I well, think I might forget that one. <laughs> we're part of a bigger system. What happens, the way it looks to me is that without any bad intent necessarily, people um, abandon their family when yeah. they die because they don't have a framework for continued care. Mm-hmm. And if I said, as soon as people turn 70, we need to ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. People would be like, dude, that's not very ethical. We shouldn't do that. Well, I agree. But it looks the same. It's like, well, when the body dies, we should cease to engage with them, cease to be open to contact with them, cease to extend care to them, cease to check in on them, any of it. Well, it's the same kind of abandonment. Yeah. It's very sad, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and it's beautifully said. I mean, being Jewish myself, we have such traditions and an ongoing reverence, and the body is put in the ground within 48 hours. It's never left by itself. There are always people praying over the body, and like, you know, other traditions who read rituals of, you know, passage for crossing over. Um, and you're right. It, it is a tragic loss to our society overall and our planet entirely when we don't appreciate that we all live forever, and then we decide when to come back in certain forms, and it's it's all, you know, I feel like you spend your whole life preparing for the moment of your death, mm. and um, it's like in life, we learn to climb the tree of life into self-mastery, and at death, we redo that, only it's in an instant. So you, you said that it's very important if people know that they're near death or that people prepare wills. Why, why is this an important part of making healthy community and using ancestry for healing? On a practical level, facing and preparing for a death makes the whole process easier on loved ones and family. It breaks a kind of shame or taboo around speaking of death as if speaking of it's going to cause it. And so there's a dispelling of fear that is beneficial culturally when we face our death. And we're preparing on a soul level for the next stage of our journey when we face all that. The mystical traditions that speak of a kind of death before death are in part speaking about this, that we live as if we've already died in a sense. And that we understand that this world and the other world are part of a bigger continuum. Right. Now, intellectually, you can get that to a degree, but typically it comes through practice or through being really cracked open in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's a different thing to embody it. But living with less fear tends to allow our love and care for the world to flow a bit more easily, which we could use a bit more of these days. And by love, I don't just mean sweetness. I mean fierce warriorship to stop the destructive, hateful forces that are wrecking the earth also. So love can look very fierce as well. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, Go ahead. I was going to say, in, in part of your book, you talked about, you know, some people say, well, I, I'm an artist or I'm a painter and um, I feel an affinity with Chagall, if somebody said that. And, and you point out that there are affinity ancestors, vocation ancestors, that this is all a very vibrant source that we can draw from and, and it benefits those who have passed on. Sure. I, 
I think of a poet who was influential to me as a teenager of Allen Ginsberg. Mm -hmm. And he had a very intimate relationship with Walt Whitman, who passed before Allen Ginsberg was born. And I remember I had met Allen Ginsberg a few times. And I remember when I heard that he had died. And it was as if his soul, if you will, was poured into his legacy and all the words that he had spoken. And there's a kind of emptying or mm, scattering of his legacy, uh, scattering of his soul in a relevant way, an intentional way to inhabit his legacy. And um, the yes, we can have uh, direct communion and relationship ancestors of vocation or of calling. And it's appropriate to do that. I'm training as a diviner in Yoruba tradition. I'm initiate of Ifa and several other Arisha and Ogboni and some other societies. And, and um, part of that means some training as a diviner. And so the ancestral diviners in our lineage are part of my um, team of people who are trying to get me to level up and know what I'm doing. I remember when I was a full-time broadcaster and doing a great deal of political work, I became very involved with the work of Will Rogers, part mm -hmm. Lakota, chair, etc. And there were times where I would get up at the same time every morning at like 4 a.m. and he would dictate. And I was like, okay. And I think for those of us who have sort of worked in this um, how to be accessible to to ascended teachers, to to the goodies, who are mm -hmm. trying to fill vessels down here, that it can be um, um, a wonderful experience, but you really have to be humble. I mean, my experience is you have to empty yourself, be available to the source, and, and um, only keep what's good. Many people are quietly dealing or not dealing with a devastating sense of loneliness mm -hmm. and disconnection. Mm -hmm. And it comes partly because in Western modern culture, we tend to say only other living humans and not all of them are legitimate other people and maybe your pets. And so those are the only places you can really get intimacy from if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. And that's not how most people on earth for most of time have seen it. Most people and still most people on earth um, that are not modern Western people relate quite comfortably with the ancestors, with the other spirits and teachers, with the plants, the animals, the land. Yeah, totally true. And so these are sources of, in of relational intimacy and psychological resilience that are totally available. It's just a matter of melting the confusion and the cultural disconnect we've internalized. They're waiting for us to come back into relationship. And frankly, they're like, Hey, humans, you all need to work it out. Yeah. You're causing some damage in a really big and irreversible way. Sure would be good if you would get out of the bubble soon because you're causing trouble. And so for anybody in the audience who's saying, well, this really interests me and I don't know much about all of the lineages I'm part of. You gave us one exercise. Can you give us another um, way in which somebody can experience what you're pointing to? Yeah. Well, let me let me name succinctly the ways to to be involved with stuff because it's a it's a big topic. Yeah. There's the book. I have a full length online course. There's a 
body of 30-some so far practitioners that I've trained in this work from diverse ancestries who accept low-income clients. So, so that's a very efficient way is to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody like that. And then there's trainings in a number of different countries that happen in person. So connecting with another person who can support you in whatever form or with the teachings directly, that's, the, that's a great way to go. Um, another simple thing uh, is, it sounds so basic, but hold the intent to re-enliven a framework for relating with the ancestors. If you don't have the intent to re-enliven that framework, it's like, there's a lot of stuff on the internet, but without a computer and internet connection, it's just theoretical. So the first earliest practices really have to do with making sure the connection is intact, like the, the actual cultural tech that allows it to be possible for you is reclaimed enough for you to start to enjoy the intimacy of the relationship. But if I have to say one of the principles, like bring your heart and your messiness and your vulnerability to it mm -hmm. and let the wise old grandmas and grandpas, the, the goodies, so, you know, as you said, let them help you lay your troubles at their feet. They're invested in our well-being, and we're, we're in trouble right now. We're in trouble really deeply. We need a lot of help, Yeah, for... and they want to help, but they're also polite. And so if we don't ask for it, they don't always intervene. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, something you said earlier about, you know, people experience perhaps this um, continuum uh, across time with their animals and that the bonding is so intimate. Yeah. Um, and unconditional that when an animal dies that I mean, I've done so many interviews over the decades of people who, you know, help others talk to their deceased animal. And yet you don't often hear too many of me talking about talking to your deceased relatives. <laughs> so it's an interesting um, point of view that our culture is like, oh, it's OK to know that you can talk to your animals after they die, but not humans. Humans are the most dangerous of animals, mm -hmm. and most people have experienced real betrayal and harm from humans. And so it's a tall ask yeah. for them to trust another human. Uh, animals, uh, granted, on some level, we're projecting certain things that we need onto them, which isn't inherently bad because they're also intelligent and complicated in their own right. But we also um, often feel more permission to bring the innocence and the uh, vulnerability and the open-heartedness that yeah. we want to dwell in to those relationships. And that's great. And the challenge is to also bring that to other human relationships, to the earth, to our politics, to our lifestyle, all of it. Yeah. You just do a wonderful job of opening up a doorway for all of us and for, you know, humanity to appreciate that whether we're in body or I used to talk with a deceased bonobo named Matata. And mm -hmm. at the, when we began our conversation, she was living. She has since passed on. And she used to talk about um, her ancestors who were not here now. 
That was the way mm-hmm. she referred to the dad. And uh-huh. when she would talk to me and tell me bonobo secrets, she had to ask the elders first, could she tell me the secrets about the time of the giants? Could she tell me the secrets about how the bonobos used to take care of the discarded humans during the Ice Age? I mean, I know there's some people in the audience going, well, there Zoe goes again. But um, I, I found oh, in my own... You. What's that? I said I follow you. It's good. Yeah, yeah, well, I spent a, a number of years working with animals to tell their story through their voice and not mine, and I did it through dream telepathy. And I found that um, when my own dog died, he went to a school where they help animals who have been harmed by humans. And uh, anyway, you learn a lot when you open up that part of yourself to what isn't visible physically, but is visible through your heart. Um, we have a much more enriched life and a much broader toolbox as it is to be of service in the world. And that's why I love your book, because you make it so that all of us can be of greater service in the world. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I tried to write it in a way that's really inclusive, but also pragmatic and applicable. So it's kind of a how-to book. Yeah. Well, you've you've done a wonderful job. I want to thank you for joining us and encourage our audience to go to www.ancestralmedicine.org. Again, the book is by author Daniel Four, F-O-O-R. His book is entitled Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, a Bear and Company 2017 release. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.